will be in Acts 27, uh, verse 13, and we're going to try and make it all the way to the end, if you can believe it. Uh, but this is our study, Acts, the church on earth, and the message today is shipwrecked. Okay. Shipwrecked, or take courage. If you're given a subtitle, it's take courage. But in Acts, we're looking at the church on earth. The church, as we know, is not a building. It is the body of Jesus. And I think we sometimes forget that, that we are his body. If we're full of his spirit, we're his body. We're living, moving, and doing the things that he did and still does today. That God isn't done with people and with the church. And he's still doing the same things he's always been doing because he never changes. But we're, done, we're doing it by the power and influence of the Holy Spirit that we should be possessed by God. You know, not like a horror movie possessed, but possessed by him. That if we're doing things in the power of his spirit, it's going to be like he's doing them. And hopefully this morning you'll hear his voice and his word by his spirit. But the church isn't perfect. And I think a lot of people are afraid to go to church because they realize they're imperfect. But that realizing that you're imperfect is hopefully from the Holy Spirit. Especially if you don't know him, he's going to convict you of your sin and of righteousness and judgment. Say, hey, I know you're not perfect. You can never be perfect, but guess what? My son was perfect. Come to him and be made perfect. Be made in his image. And the church in that way is called to be holy. That yes, we're going to mess up, but our goal and our desire is to be holy and to remain holy. But previously we saw Paul preach to the Gentiles. He was rejected by the Jews. He was on trial for stirring up the people. And yet even the government couldn't find him uh, guilty of any crime. And he preached to kings and rulers in the government. He appealed to Caesar with his Roman citizenship. Uh, they set sail for Rome. We saw last time that Paul gets on a boat, and then they get on another boat, and they're trying to ship him all the way across the world to Rome, which to us, you get on a plane probably for 70 bucks. I don't know what it costs over there, but European flights are cheaper, and be there in a couple hours. But to Paul and them in their day and age, it was a long and hard journey. Uh, he had a Roman escort, Julius, who was a centurion. Uh, he was a soldier over many soldiers. And God gave Paul favor with Julius, and he brought along Luke and Aristarchus, which, again, if you remember the prison system, we talked about it last time, that uh, if you didn't have friends to help you, you were out of luck. There was no three square meals a day. There was no cable TV in, in Roman prison or prison back then. But they were trying to get to, to Rome before winter. It was the fall. Uh, and Paul told everyone, hey, guys, we're going to die. This ship is not going to make it. And the captain and the owner of the boat were eager to press on. Uh, and Julius, the, the Roman guard, sided with the captain uh, over Paul. But as we get started, I just have a few questions to consider. Um, and I ask, what do we do in the storms of life? Are we prepared when they come? Do we get lost? You know, there were, the other week there were a bunch of squalls and they were warning about visibility. And be careful if you drive later. It's not going to be a lot of snow, but you're not going to be able to see. Do you get lost when the storms come? And what's your outlook for the weather? Do you always think it's stormy outside? Or are you that person with the storm cloud that's over, always over your head? Oh, what was, who was that? Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh? Oh. Do we get tossed by the slightest drizzle? We were from the Northeast, and we were used to driving in rain. But somehow, I don't know what it is with Maryland, but when we lived in Maryland, and you'd have to go there to experience this, when there's any kind of rain, I mean, people don't really know how to drive in Maryland to begin with, but they totally forgot how to drive. I remember people were pulling over on the left shoulder on the highway with their blinkers on when it was barely raining. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like rows of cars pulling over. I'm like, it's really not that bad, guys. Um, 
But I digress. I hear it's very similar in Arizona and the Southwest when it rains because they don't get much. But Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came. The same things happened to him. And the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And Lord, this morning we know that you give your word to us to feed us and to encourage us but also sometimes to warn us. But God, I know that this morning, I believe you want us to, to find courage in it, to put our trust in you as we go through things in life, that God, you allow certain things to happen. And overall, you see through the storm, you're above it all. And God, like we saw uh, in the Gospels, you were able to walk on water and walk through the storm. So God, help us to do that and meet you when you call us in the middle of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read. Uh, verses 13 through 20 of Acts 27. And it says, When the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had attained the necessary conditions, because before they weren't getting a lot of wind, they were actually having trouble getting anywhere, uh, they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But soon afterward, a tempestuous wind swept through called the Euroclidon. And when the ship was overpowered and could not head into the wind, we let her drift. Drifting under the lee of an island called Cauda, we could scarcely secure the rowboat. And when they had hoisted it aboard, they used ropes to undergird the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the sand of the Sirtis, they let down the mast and were so driven. We were violently tossed by the storm. The next day, they threw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, we threw the tackle of the ship overboard with our own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was upon us, all hope that we should be saved was lost. So they get into this storm. Like I said, like last time, they were having trouble even getting anywhere because there wasn't enough wind for them. And uh, they were really struggling. They couldn't get out of port. They were in a smaller port. They didn't want to winter there. And that's part of why they pressed on. But these winds and this weather can be deceiving. You know, they, they finally got a south wind, something that was favorably, that they could put the sails up and go. And they're like, great, we got a last little burst of weather. You know, when the fall comes and you get, you know, at least in the Northeast, we called it Indian summer when you would get a little bit more warm, a last little taste, you get a little taste of summer before the fall would come. You're like, oh yes, it's going to be spring. Yes, I thought the snow was over. And then we got two more storms, which was fun because we got to go out and play with it, but winter wasn't quite done yet. And so they thought that they were going to have some favorably weather to sail because remember they don't have motors they don't have a bunch of slaves like ben Hur to get them going they're reliant on the wind to go anywhere and there's times before a big storm when the weather is very nice when everything seems great uh you know there's been several times even this past winter when if i didn't have the luxury of the weather report i think we have a beautiful day coming ahead of us and yet in the afternoon clouds would roll in and we'd get heavy snow We'd have no idea of what was going to happen. And for them, even being very experienced in the weather, they were very hopeful when this happened. But this wasn't, a, this wasn't like a nice breeze coming in. This was the weather that was getting pushed out of the way by this giant Euroclidon. And think of it almost as a hurricane in the Mediterranean. Uh, swirling clouds, strong winds, large waves, heavy rain. And these are seasonally. They come in the fall and the winter. 
And it's very similar to what we would get back on the East Coast called a nor'easter. Um, I don't know that we have anything out here like them, but there were storms that would form in the, in the Atlantic. They would bring heavy rain, snow, blizzards, uh, and really even hurricane force winds. If you look at satellite photos of these storms, they look like hurricanes are swirling. You know, I don't, I don't really know the technical difference. Maybe it's wind, maybe it's where they form. Uh, but they were the worst in winter, November through March. Um, and so that's what's barreling down on these guys in a wooden boat. And so as they're trying to sail, they let this boat drift. So they're powerless to fight the storm. They can't navigate through the strength of this wind. I'm not a sailor, so I don't really know. But I tell you, when I try and bring the trash can out when it's windy, that lid, if I'm not holding it right, will flip up and hit me in the head. Or I'll hear, an, I remember I was on a meeting at work and I heard a noise. I thought the neighbor was doing something with the tractor. And I look outside and my trash can full of trash is flying across the driveway, banging into the barn and or banging into the shop and everything. Uh, but wind is powerful and they couldn't fight it. And so they took the sails down and said, all right, wherever the wind is going to blow us, that's where we're going to go. And, and I don't know if you feel like that sometimes in life. I just can't do it anymore wherever I go, wherever I end up. That's where we'll go. But Pastor uh, Chuck said, blessed are the flexible for they shall not break. And I think that that's good advice in life sometimes. That when the winds are blowing, when things are changing, especially at work, when there's politics and other things going on and you just can't change the way things go, sometimes you just got to go with it. You got to pick your hill to die on, right? But I, I don't think that this was a great feeling to be at the mercy of a giant storm, to want to go one way and to be trying with all your might, but to be pulled back in the other way and have to give up on where you wanted to go and where you need to go really to be safe, to get out of the way of the storm and just be swallowed up with it. But they find some kind of a little bit of shelter from the storm, not much as we'll see in this place called the, uh, it was really the Lee of Cauda. The Lee was the uh, the side away from the wind, so there's a little bit of shelter from the storm uh, and the waves, but not that much. Um, but this is an uninhabited island 23 miles west of uh, this cape on the south coast of Crete off of Greece. So it's a little area, a little, a little tiny island off another island off of Greece in the Mediterranean. Um, and again, they're finding shelter, but, but not much. I'm sure if I was out in a storm like this, any kind of relaxing in the waves would be good. There's been times when I've had severe tooth pain and have to go to the dentist, not be able to get there. And even if it just subsides a little bit, ah, oh, such a relief. And I can imagine that a storm, uh, is even just a few miles an hour less in the wind, it would be a relief. But at this point, there's really not much else between them and Africa. Just hundreds of miles of stormy sea to the south, to the west, to the east, and they're being swept out in it. And again, this is a large vessel. They had a rowboat that they towed behind it. Uh, this is a rowboat they would use to get to shore, to get to another vessel. Maybe a uh, lucky few would use it as a lifeboat in a chance. Um, but they couldn't get it on board. They were trying hard. These strong men were trying hard to pull it on board, but it was just tossed and pulled, and they could barely do it. And for some reason, I was reminded of the cruise I went on on my honeymoon. There was no storm there. But I remember the safety brief they gave where they gave all these lifeboats and they showed these cool little pods. I don't know if you guys have been on one, but you can get in it and then it throws into the sea and they make it sound like everyone will be fine. It'll be no big deal. But I guarantee the ship is going down quick. Not everybody's getting on a lifeboat. You know, three people are going to get one of those and pull the handle and it's going to go. Uh, but they didn't have lifeboats. They had one little dinghy hanging off the back of the boat. Um, and so they had to hang on. 
You know, I think for Paul and everyone that this journey would be way more like the Titanic than a Mediterranean cruise. Although you might remember a few years ago that Mediterranean cruise ran aground and flipped over the coast of Concordia. But what I found it interesting is they kept trying to do whatever they could to keep the ship together. And I don't blame them. I mean, that's kind of what you do, right? If you're on a long trip and you got to use duct tape, you're going to use duct tape to keep that part of your car together. But they put ropes uh, underneath the ship to, to, to strengthen it. So I imagine that, I'm trying to figure out how they do this. No one's going to get in the water and swim. I imagine it's simpler than that. Maybe it's something like two guys have a rope and they go to the front of the ship and they throw it over like you jump rope and they pull it under the boat and then tighten it as much as they could. And they were really trying to hold this hole together. Remember, it's not a, a steel vessel like we have today. It's a bunch of wood stuck together with ancient tools and ancient methods. I mean, the Romans obviously got some things right, like concrete. Their buildings are still around. But have you ever seen, you know, I'm not a seafaring person, but have you ever seen videos like I have of these ships in storms, like in the North Atlantic, and it's just mountains of waves, and they're just going up and down and through and crashing over? Giant cargo ships that we have today, they're steel. It makes me sick to even think about being on it, let alone in a wooden boat with a sail. And there's no Coast Guard to come save you. And there's a, a movie that came out a long time ago that I was reminded of that I might go watch. But Perfect Storm, there was something like this that happened. Uh, these uh, fishermen that got caught out in a hurricane in the Atlantic in the 90s. But the wind was blowing them to shower water. And that's not necessarily a good thing in a large vessel. You know, they're only going to be able to come in so far before they run aground and be smashed to bits. And so they were very afraid of this. And so not only did they let their sails down, but they took the whole mast down too. And that's just day one. So they go from, ah, nice little breeze. We can be on our journey to, they're taking the ship apart and tying it together as best as they could so they don't die. And day two, they find more of the same. And now they're throwing all their cargo overboard. And remember the owner of the ship in the, last, in the first part of the chapter, they wanted to keep going. Remember, he's got business concerns. He's got cargo. He's got customers. He's got money on the line. And two days later, he's throwing it all overboard. And again, he was afraid that ship wouldn't survive in that port over the winter, which it might not have, but now it's definitely not going to survive. All those losses that they were afraid of, that they were trying to avoid in their own strength, they are now coming face-to-face head-on despite their best efforts. And yet somehow in all of this, It was God's will that God would be on this boat in the Mediterranean in the middle of this storm where they're all looking like they're going to die. And as we'll see later, probably would die otherwise. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about all the perils he's in, and perils of the wilderness, and perils of the sea, and shipwrecks many. He's talking about all these things he went through for the gospel. And again, I don't want to get on and turn into a whole other message. But when you hear the prosperity gospel that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, well, I'm sure he does want you to be healthy to some degree and definitely wants to be wise and certainly wants to meet your needs. But when you look in the Bible and you look at these guys who are following God with all they had, they were sawn in two, they were hung upside down, they were shipwrecked, they were beaten, they were beaten to death, they were crucified, they lost their family, they lost their friends, Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. And we're all worried about, God, how come you don't give me my Ferrari? You know, I'm going to be 42 this summer. I still don't have my sports car, Lord. Maybe I'll never get one. 
Is that the biggest problem I have or we have? I think we've lost sight sometimes of what it means to follow God and the costs that are associated. And not necessarily that we have to always be in a bad situation, but when we do get into those bad situations, do we blame God or do we go, is it our fault or is it because this is what the gospel demands of my life? And Paul knew that whatever situation he was in, that it was for the gospel. It was God's will for him. In Jonah 1 uh, through 16, uh, we won't read it for time, but Jonah was running away from the Lord. He was a prophet of God. He didn't want to do what God wanted, so he went down to the port. He took out all his shekels, and he bought a ticket to the farthest place he could go. It was technically in Spain. And he gets on a boat, and they start sailing. And then it says that the Lord sent a storm to engulf the boat. And here's some other sailors in the same waters in the Mediterranean Throwing stuff overboard, worry they're all going to die. They draw straws to figure out whose fault it was. It comes up Jonah, he's sleeping. And he says, throw me overboard. And they throw him overboard. I don't know that's what God wanted him to do. God just wanted him to go back. He could have said, turn the boat around. But Jonah being the Eeyore type said, just kill me <laughs> instead of obeying God. But he became a witness to those men. It said that those men, when the sea became calm, offered sacrifices and made vows to God. That that storm that God sent to get Jonah in the right way was for the benefit of those sailors that were there. And that's a whole other message. But back to Paul and these sailors on day three. They start throwing the tackle. They start throwing the ropes. They start throwing the cranes. They start throwing everything else, the, the hand trucks, to get everything, the ship as light as possible. So they've thrown out all the cargo. Now they're throwing out all their tools. All they have left is themselves and some food at this point. And they're afraid for their lives. And again, now in three days, they've gone from fighting the storm to literally fighting for their lives. All their precious cargo is gone. Loss of business, loss of profits. Now the tooling. They, they couldn't even pick up new cargo. They'd have to find the money to buy new tools once they got to port. And it says that they didn't see the sun and they didn't see the stars. And it's interesting because ships navigated with the stars um, and it's interesting that we now use man-made stars in a way. We use GPS satellites to navigate. But talk about no hope. You're in a storm. You don't even get to see the sun for a little bit. You know, in a hurricane, when the eye passes over, it's a little bit of relief before the eye wall comes back. But they couldn't tell where they were. They couldn't tell where they were going. They didn't have much light. They couldn't even see the thing that they probably liked enjoying every night, the stars. And they lost hope. They lost hope. And these were sailors. These guys were doing this for a living. This was a large vessel that made large journeys frequently. These weren't just a couple of fishermen who got swept out to sea in their rowboat. And all of them were very afraid. And more than being afraid, they had lost hope. You know, they were probably putting messages in a bottle back to their family. I'll never see you again. And I wonder if Paul's words from earlier in the chapter were ringing in their ears as the wind was blowing, as the waves were crashing, as they were watching their ship be destroyed. He said, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also our lives. They're like, we lost the cargo. We haven't quite lost the ship yet, but it's certainly looking that way. And they had no hope. And there's this experiment that it's been done to show the power of hope. And I don't know if Mima would approve, but 
scientists took rats, and I don't know if I've said this before, but they've taken rats and they put them in like a bucket of water. The rats didn't last very long. I forget how long it was, 40 minutes of swimming or something, and they would drown. Then they took another group of rats, put them in the same water, and right before they drowned, they would take them out and let them recover. And then they would put those same rats who survived back in the water, and then they would swim for hours and hours on end. And the, the, the summation of it, the theory is that they would have hope then that they were going to survive. While the other rats who died you know, shortly, who weren't taken out, died because they said, oh, there's no hope, I give up, while the others made it. And you could extrapolate that to a lot of things, the way they, they do stuff to us in society, give us a little bit of hope, but we won't go there today. But we can endure a lot of things in life if we just have hope. I think a, a lot of people run out of hope and they end their life or they end something that didn't have to end because they ran out of that hope. And even Paul says, without hope, we as believers are truly lost. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, he says. Because a Christian's hope is not just for this life. It's not just to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's not just to get what you want and live a good life and have a nice family and have 10 steps to a better marriage. All those things are well and good. But if that's all we have, if Jesus doesn't give us any hope beyond the grave, then what's the point? Although on the other hand, even if nihilism is true and there's nothing after death and it's just nothing and you're not aware of it, which isn't true, I think at least Christians have hope in this life and that's better than the people who are hopeless in this life, even if they're rich. Because the reality of our world is that it is passing our way. And if our hope is for this world is passing away, well, then what do we really have? We don't have anything different than the people in the world. Yeah, we might have a, a better marriage or a nicer family, but if our hope isn't in heaven, we've got nothing more than anybody else. We just have a different method of coping. And that should be more for us. Jesus died on the cross for us for more than that. Psalm 73, uh, and I'm sure I've quoted this before, uh, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there were no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. He goes on and says, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely, God, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. You remember that his hope was not in this earth, not in being rich, not in not having the supplies to make it through the storms, but that he knew that the whole, his whole life was a storm and he would survive it on the other end. Well, they wouldn't. They would face certain destruction. Let's go on and read verse 21. It says, After they had long abstained from food, Paul stood in their midst and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete, incurring this injury and loss. But now I advise you to take courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood, be, stood by me this night the angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and look. God has given you all those who sail with you. Therefore, men, take courage. For I believe God that it will be exactly as it was told to me. Nevertheless, we must be shipwrecked on a certain island. 
And when the fourteenth night came, while we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors supposed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found the water to be 120 feet deep. And when they had gone a little far, they, t- they took soundings again and found it to be 90 feet deep. And fearing that we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And when the sailors strove to abandon ship, they lowered the rowboat into the sea under the pretext of lowering anchors out of the bow. <coughs> Excuse me. And Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these sailors remain in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the rowboat and let her fall off. So these guys were abstaining from food, probably maybe even to save rations. They didn't know how long they would be out there. Their journey wasn't supposed to be this long, and it was ending up this long. Uh, but maybe even they were just fasting in a last-ditch hope. They were fasting in a pagan way uh, to try and survive. Or maybe they just lost hope and didn't want to eat anymore. But either way, Paul... He doesn't miss words. He's not, guys, it'll be okay. He goes, guys, I told you so. I told you we shouldn't have left. I don't know if his attitude was like that. I think it was a little more gentle and firm. But he said, I told you we shouldn't have left. That we should have stayed there. But I believe he uses that to get them to listen to them, not just to chide them. Because he says, listen, I told you not to leave that this was going to happen. And now it's happening to take courage. And don't take courage in my words, take courage in God's words, because an angel of the God of whom I belong showed up to me and told me we'd be all right. And Paul knew that he belonged to God. The original wording is the God of whose I am. The God of whose I am. Paul knew that his life was not his own, that his life belonged to Jesus, and that if Jesus said he'd survive, well, he'd survive. I mean, that's a lot of faith. In the middle of the storm, you know you're going to survive. I don't know if God doesn't say that you're not going to get any salt water in your mouth. God didn't say that you might not get bruised or cut or lose your sandals when you jump overboard. But he said you'd survive. I think a lot of times we expect everything to go perfectly. And if it's not perfect, we think God's somehow not in it with us or God hasn't answered our prayers. But God said that he would give all those who sail with Paul to him. That God is merciful. These men would be saved. And a lot of them were prisoners. They were probably murderers, thieves, rapists, all that stuff. And God saved their lives. They had no need. God could have killed everyone. Everyone could have have sank right there. And Paul would be the only one who floated off to the island and eventually made it to Rome. But that's not how God wanted to do it. Because Paul, in a sense, was there to save these men from the eternal storm. And yet he says to them, nevertheless, guys, we got to be shipwrecked. The ship isn't going to make it. We're still going to crash. It's still going to be awful. It's still going to be frightening. But we're going to live. And I believe that there are consequences to setting out for these guys despite the weather. Despite taking advice to contrary to God's. Then when they took that advice, it was going to cost them everything. The boat might have survived there. Paul and the Romans could have gotten a horse, could have gotten an ancient Roman Uber all the way to Rome and made it there without the boat. But they lost everything. But Paul didn't lose anything. Paul didn't have anything going into it. There was no skin off of Paul's back. He just got wet for a little while (laughs) other than having to go through this awful uh, experience. But everyone else on the boat lost everything. They lost their livelihood. They lost their cargo. They lost their business. They lost their hope. 
And God's word for us might be life, but it might also cost us a lot. And sometimes it costs us everything. But at the end of it, if we obey God, we'll come away with our lives. We'll come away with our faith. And maybe even some people around us might come away with those things as well. Because the storms that God sends us sometimes are there to get our attention. Like with Jonah, right? Jonah, you're going the wrong way. Sending you a storm. And when God does that, we need to take heed. Is this my fault? Is it God trying to get my attention on something? Is it something else? Or is it just bad weather and this is just winter and that's what happens? But we, uh, when he does get our attention, we need to throw it all away if we want to live. Otherwise, we'll go down with the ship that we're sailing on. If we're on a, the ship of an ungodly relationship, if we're on a ship that takes us away from doing godly things or being there for our family, and I understand having to you know, work and all those things, don't get me wrong. Or if it's a lifestyle that's sinking our faith, sinking our witness, we need to act now. We need to turn to Him now. Because there's a life to be had in Him, but it's going to take courage to get through and cling on to that. And to even survive it. It could cost you a lot. You're good. You might be in a storm, and it might take going through a whole lot more storm to get out of it. And so they say that the 14th night, the two solid weeks of this, not seeing the stars, not seeing the sun, being tossed around, throwing things overboard, hanging on, probably getting sick to your stomach. Maybe that's why they're not eating. They've been moving up and down so many times. They're puking. Somebody was keeping count of the days. Uh, but I mean that there's, there's divine providence that they're still there and they haven't run around in Africa. And then based on later verses, it seems that they were further south than what we'd call the Adriatic. It seems like more maybe the Ionian Sea for geography. But they supposed again. They supposed last time and they were wrong. They supposed that the wind was a good sign and it wasn't. But now they're, they're supposing that they're close to land. And they can tell by the wind, the water, maybe the sounds, just their experience. It sounds like we're getting close. Things are behaving differently. But land must be close. And so they begin to take soundings. And they didn't have a radar like we do. They didn't have a fish finder on the bottom of the boat. But they would have a string with a plumb bob. And they'd let it off the side. And they'd count how long it was until it hit ground. And they could tell how deep it was. Right? We don't need all this fancy tech. You just need a string with a rock on the end and to measure it. And they could figure out how far they were going. And they actually had a similar thing that I learned about recently called dead reckoning, where you'd let a, a, a rope and something similar off the back of the boat, and you could figure out how fast the boat was going. And you could, fig- you could chart your course on uh, a map with that, figure out how fast, and you're heading. Even subs do that today because there's no window in the front of the submarine. They just use how fast they're going and they're heading. But we think of these people as not being very capable, and they were very capable in what they could do. But they could see that the water was getting shallower, and it was getting shallower fast. And so they dropped four anchors off the back of the boat. That's a lot of anchors for any boat, let alone off the back. So the boat's headed straight in. They don't want it to turn and be smashed. And so they throw them off the back. And they want to hit the brakes as fast as possible. This, this water level's coming up. The ship is deep. The waves are coming up and down. And they're trying to save it by all means. And yet there was a few sailors, if not all of them, that wanted off. And, and who could blame them? But... They knew they were getting close. They knew they would survive. They knew what would happen to the prisoners. 
Um, and so they began to sneak off to the front of the boat and pretend that they were going to lay down more anchors. Can you just picture them? Hey, boss, we're going to go put anchors down in the front now. Okay, that makes sense. Meanwhile, they've got the boat under a blanket or something, and they're bringing the rowboat up to the front, and they're lowering the rowboat off the front. And Paul's probably hanging out and sees all this goes on. And he goes up to Julius, and uh, he goes, he tells him that, <laughs> that, that that's happening. And so he rats them out. But he does it, not to be mean because he wanted to be on that, but he knew that they had to stay together to live. That the God's word to them was that they had to be all together. And I think my wife's smiling because she knows what I'm going to say. But we've been watching a show, and they say throughout all the show, live together but die alone. And that's really what had to happen here. They had to live together. That they would die if they all jumped off separately. That God wanted them to all be together as a witness, and that was his plan for them. And that would take faith, right? That would take faith to do. The, the commander of the boat, or uh, the commander of the soldiers, tells them to cut the rowboat off. This guy now really believes Paul. They've been in this storm for several weeks. He could have said, I'm the, I'm the Roman captain out of my way. That's my boat, and gotten off the boat. I think that might have been what I would do, right? But that's not what he does. He cuts the ropes and says, nope, we don't need this boat. Paul said we're staying here. Paul got a vision from his God and says we're all going to stay together. We're all staying together. And he didn't have a mutiny either. But the sun was about to come up. Paul urges these guys to eat. They needed their strength to swim. And it says that they were all encouraged by the food, the hope, Paul's prayer for them. And I think being together as well, that there's an importance of being together and being with others when you're in a storm. Because we're not designed to do this alone. Especially when life is storming. God does not want you to be alone. There's a, I remember living alone for a while when a roommate moved out and I was waiting for another roommate to come in for a couple months and it was lonely. Sitting there, it's quiet, I get home, just have the TV. That It's not good. And life was fine. If I was going through a hard season in life, a depressing thing, that would be really hard to deal with. And what do they do to us the past few years? Try and make people live alone and be away. Can't even hug, can't even do anything. And it's all proof that none of it ever worked anyway. And how many people killed themselves in that season? A lot. We shouldn't be alone. And if we know people who are alone, we need to reach out to them and encourage them to not be alone and see how they're doing because it's not healthy. You're alone by yourself for a while and think, you just start to act funny and act different. Just not designed to do it. But there are, especially as believers, I think more than that, we need fellowship, right? We can't do the Christian walk alone. But I believe too that there's tough times coming for us in this country that we should be together anyway. Imagine the supply chain fails again. We should just be together and help each other, whatever we need. But especially for believers, this persecution is coming more and more. We need to help each other, do homeschooling, do co-ops, do things where we can even just protect our children from the things in the world and raise them right. But we need to stick together in that. Don't need to agree on everything. Don't need to do everything together. We don't need to share one person, live on a commune. But we should have fellowship together in faith and encourage each other and share things with each other. We might help each other spiritually as well. You know, I, I say this in one way, you know, a midlife crisis, right? We all tend to go through it. But I think the goal of it from the Lord is to make us realize that our end is coming, that our ship is going to wreck one day, and we should get rid of all the things in our life that are weighing us down, and we should make our way to the journey of heaven. Not go back to do all the things we used to want to do that 
back when our ship could sail and, and go through the waves, my ship is getting old. It can't go through the waves as much as it could when I was 20. But not to waste our time on the things that don't matter, but that we should focus on getting through the storm of life, so to speak, to use that metaphor uh, ad nauseum. But then, man, let us count our days and know that, man, let's, let's be concerned about the things that matter. And I think storms in life are good for that. They help us realize what's important to us. We go through a tough time as a family. We lose a family member. We go through some other tragedy. We go, oh man, I need to spend more time with my kids or I need to spend more time with my wife or this really doesn't that matter as much anymore. I was putting too much focus on that. It helps us set our sights and we need to set our sights on the heavenly shore if we're going to make it because we want to make it. We need to make it. It's not a good option if we don't make it. Let's go on. Verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with the shore into which they were determined to run the ship if possible. Casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while loosening the ropes that secured the rudders. Then they hoisted the mainstall to the wind and made for shore. But striking a sandbar where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, but the stern was broken up by the violent surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, uh, wanting to save Paul, prevented them from their intent and ordered those who could swim to abandon ship first and to get to land, and the rest of the planks or on pieces of the ship. And in this way, they all escaped safely to land. We see as they pick up and they begin to be able to get some glimpse of the shore that they were headed to, they really didn't have much idea where they were. They knew the ocean they were in. I mean, they probably could tell by the stars and the time of year and where they left. But they had no idea what piece of land was looking at them in the face. They had been so blind, blinded by the storm, so lost for so long, they had no clue where they were. And they saw a good spot to aim for. And this reminded me of, I don't know why these stories come to mind. But as a kid, we used to rollerblade and not in like the neon. We used to jump off stairs and think we were cool and grind on curbs like skateboarders. But in order to get to a lot of the spots, we had to go from where we lived at the top of all these hills down this huge hill called Hilltop. Um, my mom actually used to work at the office at the bottom of the Hilltop. But it was this windy road, went all the way down into town. It was busy. And we used to go flying down this hill. We'd be going as fast as cars or faster on there. And we're just on rollerblades. You know, we had no brakes. You had to like drag your foot to stop. But we'd always get to this one turn and have to wait and make sure there were no cars coming and cross over. And if we had to, if we had to stop or slow down, we'd have to jump off the road and onto the grass. So we'd always have to, I mean, it's amazing when you get hit by a car or anything like that. Uh, but we'd aim and we'd say, oh, there's a grassy spot. We'd fly across the road, jump over the curb, land on the grass, go for a little while until the wheels got stuck in the grass. And then you'd like flip and, and fall and you'd love it, but I don't know how we survived. But that's kind of what they're doing here. They know they're going to crash. They know they've got no way to stop. They see this bay off in the distance. They're like, let's just aim right there and full speed ahead. Go for it. Because that's the best place to land. Kind of like a plane crash. You're looking for a field or a runway or a road or somewhere to land. But they caught the anchors loose. And again, this is not another cheap decision. Think about putting these anchors together back then and the cost of some blacksmith doing it, right? And cost of mining and, and all these huge anchors on this huge ship. They, they cut them all because they were willing to do whatever it cost to live. And they knew that this is the only way to go. They knew the ship was done for, but they needed to get there. 
And essentially, they even cut the rudders loose. They like cut the steering shaft basically with the ropes. And again, this ship had multiple rudders. That's a big ship. And they put the sail back up. They've had the sail down for weeks because it was going to destroy them or rip the, um, the mast away. So they put it back up and they go full speed, no anchors, no rudders. The wind, and, the wind and waves are pushing us this way. Let's go that way. And as they do this, the front of the boat gets stuck in a sandbar. This makes me want to go to the beach after this long winter. Um, and it gets stuck, but the rear of the boat gets broken up and destroyed. So imagine half a ship now stuck in the sandbar. The rear is all tore open. There's flotsam and jetsam in the water, and the front of the boat is stuck in the soundbar. And this is not water you'd want to swim in. I mean, I've been in strong currents in the tides, uh, let alone a stormy with huge waves breaking up the ship. You're not going to, even the guys who swam, we're going to have a hard time here. And so what happens? The soldiers get ready to kill the prisoners. Because if we talked about it before, I believe, that the soldiers in these day and age were liable for the prisoners. Just like uh, when the guys, the disciples were in prison and the earthquake happened and the guard was going to kill himself. And they said, don't kill yourself because we're all here. But the soldiers were liable for them with their lives. I believe they could even face the death penalty or even the prisoner's sentence if they lost that prisoner. So they said, nope, we're going to kill them all because, of course, this is a great opportunity to escape. But this would have included Paul. So you remember, Paul was a prisoner on this boat. And I bet you Aristarchus was like, Paul, why did I come with you on this trip? I could have met you next year, you know. Uh, but Paul would have been killed. The guards were taking out their swords, ready to axe everyone. And God uses the centurion Julius here again to show favor for Paul. I don't know that Julius believed in God yet. But he was certainly sympathetic and saw that there was something different about Paul. And obviously, Paul's words came true twice. And so the centurion was with Paul now instead of the captain of the ship. And the centurion put his whole life on the line and his whole regiment's life on the line to not kill Paul. Because if any of those prisoners went away, it would be on him now. And it's interesting that, man, these soldiers really liked their leader and they obeyed him. They said, okay, you don't want us to kill the prisoners? We're not going to do it. So he says, those who can swim, you guys go first. Jump off. Everyone else, grab a hold of something because you're going to need it. And so they grab a hold and they hope that the waves and the wind would blow them to shore. Just hang on and you'll get in there. And that does again, this is God's rescue plan for them. We always want a lifeboat and a helicopter and I don't know what we want, but we want it to be comfortable and we want it to be nice. We want God to get us out of what we're in and I was like, no, you got to jump in the water. All those waves. Don't worry, I won't let you drown. His answer for us is not always what we like, but it's the way of life. And so they all escaped and they safely made it to land. They made it without the ship. They made it without the cargo. And it was a two-week-long nightmare that was finally over for them. You know, just picture those movies when they wash up on land and they're all wet. And their clothes are torn and... But now they're in the, a tiny island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, I believe it's amazing they even got there. I was looking on a map, and you look at the Mediterranean, and they started out over here in, in Israel. They went up, and they went over to Cyprus. Then they went over to Crete. And then there's all this water between Crete and Italy and Greece. And then Sicily, the little football that Italy kicks. And then there's this tiny little under, underneath it before Africa. And they made it there. Out of all places, they could have blown and been washed to. They made it to this tiny little island. I believe that's a miracle. 
I believe it was also a miracle they all survived to this point. And I think it was also divine providence that they were kept alive by these Roman guards. Again, God gave them favor, showed everybody favor because of Paul. But all along, God would have this journey in life for Paul. I remember that God prophesied that he would go to go speak to, to rulers. And it was his destiny, if I can use that word, to go to Rome, to go to Caesar and to preach the gospel in all his life. And in this situation, it was him preaching to them by, you were wrong, you should listen to me, but don't worry, God showed up and he's going to save us. He ministered to them by breaking bread and praying and encouraging them. But these storms, I'm sorry, the, the men on the ship walked away with their lives, but really they walked away with the cargo of an undeniable testimony that God is real. I don't know that they all believed, but for the rest of their lives, they're not going to forget this. And I think that's why God allows storms in our life sometimes, tragedy and trial and trauma, that when he does give him, us a glimpse of him in it, there's no way we can forget it. It's easy to pass off little things. It's not easy to pass off things like this. And we had a friend over for dinner last night, and all the kids were telling all these stories when they got hurt. And I don't know how we got on this conversation, but it was like all these traumatic stories are things that you're never going to forget. And so, oh, remember this time that I cut my arm? How cool, you know, like all, all this stuff. But these storms that God allows us in life as we get ready to close are not only for us, but for those around us to come to faith in Him, to see that we're not living for this world, that our hope is not in it, but that our anchor is in heaven. That, man, we've put everything in heaven, and we're going to hang on to that rope and that anchor, and we're going to go home there one day. And I believe God would want us to take courage in that, that when our anchor is in heaven, we put our hope in Him, we put our trust in Him, that we can find courage in that, despite what comes around us, despite what happens. For God says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And that's the hope that these guys lost. And yet God had a future and a plan for each one of them. And God, we pray that, uh, God, when things happen to us in life, we would turn to you and ask you, guys, this is our fault. Is this something that you want us to change? Is it just weather? Or is it something we need to do something about? And please give us courage to do the right thing when it, it seems like we need to keep hanging on to what we've been doing. God, help us to let go of that and hang on to you. God, we ask just for your grace on us and mercy. And God, that the people around us would see us live our life not perfectly, but they would see that we do have a hope despite what happens. And uh, despite getting swayed or things in life, that they would see that we still have an anchor uh, to hang on to, and that they would come to faith in you through that. So God, uh, uh, bless us, we pray, and God, may we go forth in you, hanging on to you. And thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So may God bless you and keep you, and his faith shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until